It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast featuring me, Mike Calvin, Jordan Jarrett Bryan of Channel 4 News, and Glenn Moore of World Soccer. The images were scarily familiar. Manchester City's players looked shattered in defeat in Madrid, just as Bayern Munich's did when they were beaten by Manchester United in the 1999 Champions League final in Barcelona. But in this season, of all seasons, there's no respite, no room to feel sorry for yourself. City switched focus back to the Premier League and simply must beat Newcastle at the Etihad on Sunday. The question is, Jordan, with Liverpool on a roll, can City recover in time? I think they have to. I think they have to, Mike. They they don't really have an option for them to not see the Premier League title home now. You know, that'll be no trophies this year. So I don't think they've really got an option. There's been a lot of talk off the back of that defeat to Madrid about, you know, the Newcastle match. They could go either way. They could be... You know, Newcastle could smell blood and really try to kick a team when it's, when it's at its lowest points. Or, as I tend to feel, go the other way, where I think I think Newcastle are in trouble. <laughs> I think Man City are going to really, really come in intent at that match at the Etihad this weekend. I think their record against Newcastle, is at home especially, is, is, is something ridiculous in terms of goals. So I think they have to recover from this as well. I think it was very noticeable seeing their faces when Madrid scored the second goal. It, you, you mentioned your intro there about, you know, the, the United Bayern Munich game in Barcelona and how the Bayern players just didn't know what was going on. I remember the Milan players in that game in Istanbul just not being able to deal with what was happening. I think there was a Madrid Bayern game as well. I think Pep was a coach of Bayern where they got absolutely battered. And you could just see the players visibly not knowing what was going on around them. And I think that can impact a player and therefore a team. And I think I'm keen to see now where Pep Guardiola earns his money here and really picks his team up because it was a blow. I'm not one of those that believes that if they don't win the Champions League this year, it's a failure. I think the league is first and foremost um, the bread and butter for any serious and big teams. If they can bring the Premier League home and only that, that is a successful season for me. It's crucial that Manchester City do not slip up against Newcastle because if having, you know, the day before, assuming that Liverpool are going to be favourites against Spurs, you know, they will hope it's three points for them. That could really, um, from that week on, see Liverpool kind of closing on, on on returning as Premier League champions. Yeah. In those sort of circumstances, Glenn, perspective is always difficult to maintain. You know, there's been some absurd stuff around, you know, let's sack Guardiola. I suppose, putting that into true context, I suppose he will be judged here by how he gets his players to the right pitch and also almost avoid self-doubt, which I suppose is inevitable in these circumstances, isn't it? I mean, it will be, but I mean, they'll be able to you know, go back and think, well, actually, they played pretty well over the two legs. And, you know, and they were undone by this, this force of nature almost. But they, over the two legs, yeah, they can go back and think, well, we didn't do much wrong. The margins are very, very fine. I mean, that shot from Grealish isn't cleared off the line. They go through. Mahrez 
passes they were shooting the first leg. They're 3-0 up, they'd probably win the tie then. So, I mean, it was shattering. I mean, the Bayern Munich examples are quite a good one, but he's got two tasks, really. One is the immediate task of refocusing on the on the league. And the other one is, is going again next season because, you know, we all know that the Champions League is what, you know, the, the big design out at City because they've won everything else. Uh, and for Guardiola, who's now 11 years since he won it. I mean, Bayern, the following year, Bayern, for example, they reached the semi-final and finally I've got knocked out by Real Madrid. The following year, I remember it was in Milan, they won the European Cup, you know, having beaten Manchester United in the quarterfinal, Real in the semi-final, so slaying the two teams who'd knocked them out. And it was, a, yeah, people think that Bayern is winning these trophies all the time, where City obviously had still tried to get that first one. But back in 1999, they hadn't won the Champions League for 23 years. So it was a really big deal with the club to lose in such a shattering way. So it's, it's I mean, it's, it's a test of sort of composure and calmness and, and sense of it. It's also, it is a test of character, which is perhaps sometimes underrated in the modern game, you know, when it comes, the game is now so technocratic, so tactical, but there are times where it really does come down to, to character and, you know, have you, have you got it? And, and can you come back again? I mean, funny enough, you know, on, on a more mundane level, that, that City victory, the City defeat, very similar to a victory 20 years ago when they beat, uh, like one of the Gillingham defenders tweeting them, not too upset about City losing <laughs> over two goals in an extortionate amount of extra time. But, but that following year, Gillingham came back and did get promoted. You know, the famous 99 playoff when they were beaten with two goals and then the penalty shootout. They went up the following year. They had the character to come back. And that's the test of City, really. I mean, it's the test of you know, the management and, and the character of the players. Yeah. And also, uh, Jordan, you know, obviously we're going to talk in depth about Liverpool a little bit later. But, you know, one thing that's that's stood out from Liverpool's season so far is the way that Jurgen Klopp, you know, the husbandry of, the, of that particular squad. With Guardiola, you know, there were a couple of issues around that. Kevin De Bruyne. Wonderful player. Are there fitness issues there, do you think? Because, you know, if not, why substitute him in Madrid? Oh, man, I love Kevin De Bruyne. I, I, I tweeted just before the game, Kevin De Bruyne is going to announce today that he is the best player on the planet. And then, um, <laughs> yeah, okay, that didn't age well, that tweet, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm a huge fan of his. I think he's hugely, hugely talented. But I think it's a fair question to now ask. And I, I, it was a Champions League final last year against Chelsea where he came off after, I think it was 55 minutes or maybe an hour. Uh, I think it was a bad, it was a bad tackle from, from, from what I can remember. So he got battered by Rudiger, didn't yeah, he? Yeah. Um, yeah. But he, I think there was, a, there was a game in the Euros or maybe the last World Cup where he didn't finish the competition because he had an injury as well. I think these, these, those, these small niggly injuries now are, are becoming problematic. And it's maybe why this season... Pep Guardiola hasn't used Kevin De Bruyne as much as he has in previous seasons. He's used him sparingly. And I think it's a concern for Pep Guardiola that you're, in my opinion, your best player is, is now seeming to not be able to, A, put together 10, 10 to 15 games in a row and stay fit. But you have to now pick and choose when, when and how you use him. So it is a concern. It is a concern for him, for, for him and, and for Manchester City. I, I think that he's that good. There are some players that even if they are, are, you know, in the injury-prone bracket, and maybe I'm stretching that with applying that to Kevin De Bruyne, you still persist with them because they're that good. The days when they do play, you know, more often than not, they're going to they're gonna turn up. But I think there's a question mark about a bit, you know, there's a lot of people saying to me, he's not a big game player, which I think is a bit harsh, because I think there's been so many key Premier League games over the last four or five years where he has, he has shown up and he's, he's won them games by his performances. I think in the kind of blue chip semi-finals of World Cups and Euros and Champions Leagues, maybe he's gone, he's, he's gone missing in those games. But if, if I was Guardiola, yeah, I, I would have slight concerns now about how we use this, this phenomenal technician going forward. And that's not really ideal because then that means that you can't just put your best player on the pitch for the games where you need him. You have to think, OK, I need you today but I actually need you more for that game on Wednesday or Thursday or Friday, whenever it may be. So it will be a concern for, for, for Guardiola. Yeah, the margins are pretty fine on these sort of decisions, aren't they? You only have to look at, at Carl Walker. You know, that was a risk playing against uh, Real that obviously didn't come off. I just also want to speak a little bit, um, Glenn, about Jack Grealish. You know, in a strange way, he's hardly been helped by that Gucci contract and obviously the size of the fee, £100 million. Are doubts growing about him, do you think? Or is this just sort of first-season syndrome? Well, it's 
Yeah, so close, isn't it? I mean, you could argue he was uh, fought for certainly one, possibly both the goals in terms of closing down the cross, stop the cross. I don't think he's given a lot of support out there. It's a two and one in one case. You could also argue, though, he was a fractions away from being the match winner. So very, very uh, fine margins. I thought when he came on, he, he carried the ball, he drove deep into Ramajit territory, he did all the things he's good at. When they suddenly started getting really, really deep, of course, they then got exposed defensively. It hasn't been, let's be honest, you spend £100 million on a player, you would expect him to play more of a more of a role than he has done this year. I mean, he's been slightly overshadowed by the fact that Lukaku, almost as expensive, has done even less at Chelsea than Grealish has done at City, possibly. The interesting thing is, I mean, it's a quite a complicated sort of uh, question. You know, the system that Guardiola plays, it does take a while to adapt to. And for a player like Grealish, he's a bit of an individualist. And, and at Villa, everything tends to run through him. Yeah, maybe it's more of a chance, more it takes longer to bed into that system yeah, than perhaps yeah, some other players might. So the real question is, you know, and obviously there's, there's competition for places, you know, strong competition for places at the City. So the question is really, you know, I, I don't think, I mean, there's already talk about Lukaku leaving. I don't think there's any talk about Greece leaving, but it will be a case of during the summer. And then, yeah, next year should be the year when he's making a big impact for City. Mm. Uh, if he's not, then I think questions will be asked. Because mm. it is a, str- a strange sort of balancing act, isn't it? Jordan, when you think of Riyad Mahrez, for instance, he started 91% of City's European games, scoring seven goals in the process, but only 38% of Premier League matches. Do you know why that would be? No, when you said that in the in the notes beforehand, I was thinking about that. That, that, that struck me. I, I, I don't. I mean, unless Guardiola feels that there's something about the way that European teams play suits Mahrez's game more but then even then you know European teams play different even within themselves so the way that Bayern Munich play would be very different to the way that I don't know Villarreal may play so even that doesn't really make total sense as well I I, I, I don't know I'm, I'm, I was I was trying to think yesterday all day about why you would put pick a player so heavily in one competition and, and not in the other. And these are two elite competitions and he is an elite player. So, no, I'm, I'm waffling now, but I don't have an answer. Sorry, Mike, I failed you. No, no, no. You'd almost, I was thinking you'd almost expect that way around because his ability to sort of trick his way with very good feet between tight defences would be more used to the Premier League, perhaps, where teams sit so deep against City than, than in Europe, certainly in the later stages, when teams are more likely to come out. So it is a surprising statistic. Yeah, you know, we're talking Friday morning first thing. One thing that st- has stayed with me from Thursday night's games, you know, especially in Frankfurt and, and at Ibrox, you know, with the, with the crowds which were just off the scale. With City, and I know this is a bit of a cliche, but they're, they're often criticised for the lack of atmosphere at the, at the Etihad. Is Sunday the time... You know, for the for the for the fans to put it right, and you know, again, another cliche to become the twelfth man that that team needs. Yes, 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 they do. And I think having been to a stadium just three or four days earlier, where they saw live and direct the impact that a fan base and a stadium can have on a team, should hopefully inspire them to be like, okay, right, this 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 is the biggest game of the season for us now. If we drop if we drop points here, we're in, we're banging in trouble, as I mentioned earlier on. So yeah, I think I think the fan base. I, I was at the Etihad for a couple of Champions League games this year. You know, large sections of the crowd still boo the UEFA the UEFA anthem. I mean, I, I you know we know why they do it. I did feel to myself a little bit like, all right, come on, get get over it now. Let's move past that. You've got a great team, a great manager, and a great chance. Of, of really going deep in this, into this competition. So, yeah, they, they, they need to really make themselves heard and really lift this thing. This team will need lifting. I, I, I said earlier on that I think it will be, they'll come out hungry and looking to make a point and looking to respond, but they still will need a, a psychological lift from the crowd from minute one to let them know, okay, it was disappointing what happened in midweek, but let's refocus, let's all do this and, and, and push forward. So I think they have to make that stadium, uh, a presence in the same way that we know they do it at Anfield. We know they do it now at the, at the Bernie Bell. We know they do it at various other grounds. They now have to be that 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 twelfth man. I'm kind of copying your cliche there, and that and that may play into part of why they're not successful in Europe. It's one because a large part of the fan base don't embrace the Champions League, but also it might just more be because they haven't really, as a fan base 
garnered that that fear factor for other teams and other fan bases that this is a real European giant here. And maybe that comes by winning your first European trophy. I don't know. Um, your first Champions League. I don't know. But I, I do think they need to kind of really gather themselves to, to be the presence that really kicks on and takes this team now over the line to, to, re- to retain their Premier League title. It's a fascinating subject, actually, how you build an atmosphere at ground. I mean, yeah, obviously, Real Madrid have this relationship with the competition, yeah, and they also got used to believing they can push their team to the line. Liverpool have the same relationship with the competition. Then you go, like, yeah, Frankfurt, Rangers, no success in Europe for a long, long time, um, so great desire. City, I think, is a better atmosphere at Main Road, but West Ham have suddenly started to turn the London Stadium, which is a difficult ground as a spectator, into something of a sort of... Fortress is maybe the wrong word, but certainly a ground that reverberates with a lot of atmosphere. Yeah, these sort of, these sort of things do tend to grow organically, but clubs can help to influence it. You, you sort of feel it ought to come through a lot of history or an underdog thing. I mean, you go to a lower division game in a you know, lower league ground in the FA Cup tie, and there's a lot of buzz around it when they're playing a big team, and which they don't get for the ordinary games. But then you look, I mean, look at the women's game. The new franchise in America, Angel City, they played their first league game this week. They've got 22,000 people who basically sang the whole way through, and that's a completely new club. PSG, ever the, the ultras follow the women's team and create a fantastic atmosphere. They had 40,000 at the European Cup semi-final, the Champions League semi-final. And that's partly because a lot of the ultras are banned from following the men, started following the women. So it's one of those things, I mean, club executives must, yeah, particularly the city, I imagine, must obsess for ages how can we... How can we sort of help create this atmosphere? But it does, to a large extent, have to come organically from the fans themselves. It, it is a fascinating subject. I mean, um, how you can get that going. Because once you get that sort of momentum going, as we saw in Madrid, then you, you, you really are a, a huge advantage. So just to briefly add to that, finally, I think there's also commercial value in having a stadium and a fan base that are known as a raucous, but fun, mm. uh, loud fan base. Being at Liverpool at Anfield for a couple of their Champions League games this year, it's my first time being at the European Nights there. You get to, there's so many sponsors, not only because it's Liverpool Football Club and they're a big club and they've got star players, but I spoke to one of the guys in the commercial team and he said, part of our selling appeal when we do deals is that people know that on, on European nights, you know, even television companies, they all want to have, they want to show the, the, the games when, when it's European nights there because they know that not only is there a fantastic team, they've got a charismatic manager, they've also got a fan base on the ground that you can sell, you can sell to the world. So I think there's commercial value also in having a fan base and a stadium that are known for being the place to be. Mm. But don't you feel, Glenn, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated, for instance, by, you know, the, the potential power of destiny. You know, we're going to look at Real Madrid, obviously, in the build-up to the final on May the 28th. But what about that? They, you know, Real Madrid, you could see that they believe that they've got fate on their side. I can see something similar in Liverpool as well. What about you? Well, one of them's wrong. <laughs> One of them has to lose in the final, so (laughs) one of them has to be wrong. Um, But it's a a great thing to have that you feel you're going to turn things around. And um, I think if you've got particularly, you see, if if you're used to late goals, late winners, you're going to keep that belief. Equally, if you're used to conceding late goals, you're going to believe you're going to concede late goals and get deeper and deeper and make mistakes. I mean, um, you know, AFC Wimbledon are a good example. I think they've led something like 15 times this, you know, in, their, in their run. Of, you know, they haven't won since Christmas. They've been ahead a lot and often see in the last 10 minutes. It's, um, you know, it gets into your heads, doesn't it, that you, you, are you going to score or we're going to concede? And, and then the, the your name's on the cup. Well... I mean, to, to an extent, yeah, we remember the self, the ones that were, came out right. I mean, there's obviously lots of teams who thought the name was in the cup and then, then lost. But uh, certainly these two teams are beginning to feel that, you know, Real Madrid obviously feel that you know, the Champions League is theirs. I think Liverpool are beginning to believe they could win all four. And, you know, that would be you know, a, a real historic achievement. And it happens, I mean, sometimes if you get a few lucky breaks and, you know, Real certainly had that to, to an extent. Or you just keep overwhelming teams, you know, like Liverpool do. So um, they they both clearly believe fate is on their side. However, only one of them has to be true. <laughs> yeah, as you as you say there, you know, Liverpool are only six games potentially away from that that quadruple, and it, it is now feeling real. Jordan, you know, they're next on BT Sport on Saturday evening uh, at home to Spurs, um, Liverpool. Would you say that this is potentially the the most dangerous Premier League fixture in their running. Yes, 
Yes, um, I, I do think Spurs, in in some ways, are probably more more than City are probably more dangerous team for Liverpool to play because of the way both teams play. I think Spurs don't have the def- the, def- the defense, if you like, that Man City have. It's not as good as Man City's, but I think it's good enough to try and withhold pressure. But I think they've got better spring players, so if they can lure Liverpool in, I think in Son and Kane. Um, runners like Bergwijn, uh, Mora, you know, obviously Son feeding, Kuliseski. I think they've got players that can can counter better in a way than than even Manchester City, and I think that could be an issue for Liverpool. So I think this is the one. If Liverpool can 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 navigate this fixture, I don't see any of the other fixtures causing them problems. I think this is the one where Manchester City will be hoping. Spurs can get something. I'm an Arsenal fan, so obviously I'm hoping for a Liverpool win. But um, I think this is the fixture that Man City will be thinking, if they don't drop points in this game, they're not going to drop any more points for us the season and therefore we're going to have to win every game remaining this season. So no, I think this is the one that Liverpool, I think, will also feel, get over this one and, you know, we're kind of there in terms of doing the, the most that we can do to win this title. Yeah, well, they got away games at, at Villa and Southampton following, ended up at Wolves at home. So, as you say, you don't agree with that, that the Spurs game is probably their toughest test that is facing them in domestic terms anyway. You mentioned briefly earlier on, Glenn, the whole idea of strategic standards about you know the maximisation of, of resources and that Jurgen Klopp's a master at that particular art. I want to look at just focus in on the whole idea of you know the utilization of a squad. You know, there's been a bit more nonsense talked about Manchester City having a thin squad. Well, they've spent nearly a billion pounds on it, so you can't have it both ways. But what about the way that Klopp has been using his substitutions over recent weeks? It's been very clever, hasn't it? It's just very clever, and they've got guys. I mean, the, the impact Diaz made off the bench in Villarreal was. Yeah. Yeah, quite significant, wasn't it? The way he turned the game, and I mean, it, it's it's great if you've got that range of players, you know, uh, that strikers, you know, to have so many key players. I mean, Jota's been a very good signing for them. So you've got, you know, Firmino's had a quiet season, but you've still got four absolutely top quality players you can uh, rotate up front. They've got good uh, a good mix of players they can bring in in midfield. And he's now got cover, you know, one or two defensive positions as well. So it has been very good, and he, you know, clearly. Yeah, in these days, in these days with sports science and you know the, the trackers on on their vests, you, you know when players are getting tired, you know when to bring them on, take them off. You get managed to get lots of in-game advice from the medical department and the physios. Uh, it looks like it does look like they've um, listened to that advice because managers don't always listen to that advice. And yeah, their injury record this year has been pretty good. Give the amount of games they're playing, the intensity of which they play, which I mean, Liverpool do play at great intensity. You'd imagine by now they have more injuries, more more of those sort of small muscle injuries, that, uh, soft tissue stuff that uh, teams get, given the amount of work. But you know, if you're only pressing for an hour and then you come off, then it's obviously a lot easier pressing for say, 85 minutes and you know just come for the last five minutes, like a lot of changes are. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's it's a very it's a it's a good impressive all round setup there. Yeah, because when you think about it, that the utilization of, of, of that squad, Jordan, it does imply trust in the players that they'll go on do their job and you know not let anyone down but also what's coming across it seems to me anyway is that there's this collective character to manage games at a very tense critical stage of the season yeah i agree and, and not just managing the games it's, it's the kind of the, the selecting of who plays in what games and the kind of gambles that they are obviously weighing up educated gambles that they're weighing up in terms of how they can get all four of these trophies. And I think the game against Newcastle on the weekend was an example of that, you know, to not start Salah. I don't think Trent started in that game either. And there was a Champions League game recently where Salah, Trent Alexander-Arnold, Van Dijk, I think Mane as well, were all on the bench. I think it was the second leg against uh, Benfica. These are these are decisions that they are, that, that are some would see as gambles, they see it as necessary decisions to be taken in order to ensure that they really peak in the last kind of couple of weeks of the season where hopefully they were picking up two, three, four trophies. But I think the word you mentioned in the start of your question there was trust. And I think trust is key. 
because trust is the core of what's happening at Liverpool. And it all starts and ends with Jurgen Klopp. He trusts his medical team. He trusts the board to do their job and handle the Salah situation while simultaneously bringing in a player like Diaz, who I think next year is going to be an absolute animal. I think it's going to be a huge problem for us the league next season. He trusts the players that he's taking in and, and you know, um, the likes of Milner who started against Newcastle and he's taking up... He, he, trust is the, is the real key word there. And I think if everybody trusts everybody to do their job and to do it well, I think we're seeing now what's, 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 what's happening and where they are, which is on the cusp of doing something, which I think, gonna, I think there's three trophies there, at least for Liverpool. I think they beat Real Madrid in the final quite comfortably, I think. I think they beat Chelsea um, in the FA Cup final. And as, as mentioned, if, they, if Newcastle can get anything at the Etihad, I think Liverpool win the Premier League as well. So... I think believing everybody's roles and what they have to do, but it all coming back to they all back and believe and trust in Klopp, I think is is really the centre point of where why Liverpool are where they are currently at the moment. The other the other thing you don't see what you don't see at Liverpool you don't see stories in the press about players unhappy with their lack of playing time wanting to move you don't see players being substituted throwing their you know, kicking the water bottle throwing the tracksuit down when the kit man offers it sitting there sulking you, you do get a sense of players you know as John says trust trust a manager yeah it's it's a group it's a group performance I mean. People like Jordan Henderson, such a, such a crucial player a couple of years ago. He's now having less less time on the pitch. Um, Origi, you know, you never see him for months on end, and he comes on and scores a crucial goal. Firmino, Milner, you know, Emoxay Chamberlain. You've got you know quite a lot of players who are maybe bit bit part players probably isn't quite the the word to describe some of them, but you know, players who are having maybe less of a key role than they would have done in recent you know in other teams or in other times, and, and they seem quite happy and content that the collective is what matters. And that's a skill. That that's a skill. I mean, Aguayo gets mm. off, often kind of labelled with the oh, could he do it? He's only been at clubs that have had money and top players, you know. But managing and keeping twenty two top players happy that's a skill. That's part of management. That's just as important as working out your tactics or your recruitment. Keeping all these top players and egos happy and performing at the elite level across four competitions, that's a skill. That is a, that is a, that is a skill that those managers have. So um, I, I, think it, well, I think that shouldn't be underestimated how difficult it is to kind of, you know, tell Salah, you're not playing today. Van Dyke, you're not you're not starting today, and still not have them kicking off, and uh, you know as you mentioned there, Glenn, you know leaking stories and you know, d- demonstrably throwing down their 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 shirts and whatever when they when they do come off or whatever it may be. What about Salah? You know we talk about the perfect week. Well, on Tuesday he reaches the Champions League final. On Wednesday he's got his wish to play Real Madrid in that final. Granted. On Thursday, he toddles down to London and picks up the Footballer of the Year trophy. As weeks go, that's not bad, is it, Glenn? No, not bad at all, is it? Interestingly, slightly enigmatic comments when he was asked if he was staying and what he'd be doing next year, just to keep the pot boiling, I guess, I suppose. Um, you know, uh, negotiations are still continuing, I think. Um, so, uh, but yeah, he's, had, he's, he's peaking at the right time of the season. He's, he's hardly not peaked all year. He's had obviously uh, a couple of crushing, uh, you know, a crushing blow of Egypt, um, a couple there. But yeah, back back at Liverpool, it's been going very well for him. Um, yeah, he, he really has been an extraordinary presence. Yeah, since he moved, since he arrived on Anfield. Yeah, his impact on the game, his impact on wider society. Um, yeah, uh, you know, rep- what he represents has been very impressive, and I very much hope he stays here because he's, he's good for our game. Yeah. What about Spurs, Jordan? You know, you'll need no reminding. They're two points behind Arsenal uh, with four games left. Burnley and Watford, their last two fixtures. But, you know, I suppose above and beyond the North London derby, they probably need something from Anfield, don't they? I think they do. I think they do, Mike. Everybody's talking about the North London derby next week being the decider and the crucial game. I, I don't agree. I think this goes to the last game of the season. I think this will go to the final weekend of the season. Having said earlier on that I think that Spurs are probably the best team suited at harming Liverpool because of the way they play, the way they're set up, I think Liverpool will win, still win that game. If Arsenal are to beat Leeds at home, which you'd expect Arsenal to do, they're going to that North London derby with a five-point buffer. I think Spurs win that North London derby regardless. However many points there's a gap going into that game, I've just got a feeling that 
Spurs will win that game. That then, if I'm correct in my in my in my predictions here, is goes back then to a two point buffer. But Spurs, as you mentioned, his last two games of the season, I think six points. I, I think there's there's six points there. So this this won't be decided for me at the North London Derby next week. This goes to the last game of the season, um, and and Spurs will be I think telling themselves if they can get something at Anfield, that would not only be a psychological boost for them going forward into the North London Derby. If Arsenal, especially if they don't get don't get three points against Leeds, I think the second psychological blow would be on, on Arsenal that oh wow they went to Anfield and got a point and now we've got to go to to a to a bouncing Spurs at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. So I, I think there are so many permutations that come off the back of Spurs getting something at Anfield beyond just a point or three points. I think it's the effect that it will have on not only their team but on the Arsenal the Arsenal squad as well. I agree with most of that. I actually think the crucial date. I mean, I also think Spurs will win the, the derby. Um, and I think I, I don't think it goes the last weekend of the season because Arsenal got Everton at home and they always win that game. And Spurs at Norwich, and I imagine they win that game. So the crucial date's the 16th of May, Newcastle Arsenal, which is probably Arsenal's most difficult fixture after yeah, the, the yeah. derby. And you know, it'd be a case of who's top after that game. Will, will stay above in those two teams. I can't see either dropping points the last day of the season. I mean, you never know, but it's um, unlikely. Glenn, what do you think about you know the continuing conjecture around Antonio Conte? You know, is there still the sense that he's got eyes elsewhere? And given that, do you think they need to actually qualify for the Champions League to make sure he stays? Well, he's very high maintenance, isn't he? I must admit. Yeah, I think he is. So certainly making it very clearly public aware that he's available if any super club wants him. I know he's been linked with PSG. I can't quite see Conte running a squad that has Neymar, Messi uh, in, in it <laughs> and ask them to track back and work, provide the work rate that he wants. But, I mean, so there aren't that many clubs left who are going to be in the market. Um, yeah, clearly, I suspect, actually, a lot of this is about you know, making the most of your... Muscle in terms of, you know, if you don't give me what I want in the transfer market, I'm off and there's lots of people who want me. Paul Joyce, the interesting story about the fact that Diaz, Liverpool sort of posting from Spurs after leaving the range sort of a, a deal with add-ons and Liverpool sort of thought, oh, we, we can do that and obviously um, offered him a better option. Yeah, so having missed out on Diaz and how well Diaz has done, you know, Conte went like that. I do find it quite funny, you know, what he said at the weekend, um, yeah, no one could imagine November when I arrived, we'd be in this race for the Champions League with, with four games to go. Well, when he arrived, there were two points behind Arsenal and two <laughs> points off fourth place. There's still two points behind Arsenal and two points off fourth place. So it's not exactly the greatest chance formation we've ever seen. In fact, if you look at the table after that, was after 10 games. It's funny people say, you know, that the, the table set was down after 10 games. If you look at the table after 10 games, Almost everyone's in the same position. <laughs> yeah, there's been some minor changes here or there. I mean, Liverpool have overtaken Chelsea. Uh, West Ham has dropped a couple of positions. But with the exception of Newcastle and Everton, who basically swap places, most teams are roughly now where they were then. And that includes Spurs, who were you know, literally two points behind Arsenal and two points off fourth, and they're still there. So it's not as if he's created this miracle transformation with this squad of absolute nobodies. Yeah, he's got the, probably the best striking partnership in Europe, certainly one of. And yeah, Kane's found his form after a difficult sort of summer. So he's he's a he's a good manager, but he's not an absolute miracle worker like he likes to sort of give the impression. Uh, yeah, in terms of what he's done this year. So we'll see. There's a lot of politics. I mean, must be fascinating being a fly on the wall with Conte and Levy. You know, because two two good negotiators, um, both trying to yeah, both trying to do their best for their club, but on their own terms. Levy likes something, but <clears throat> as you know, Daniel Levy likes something players late in the summer because he hasn't got to pay their wages all summer. Managers obviously want their players in as soon as possible so you can work on them and watch this space for that one. I think it would also be a really bad look for Conte if he was to move on. I know that he's, you know, left clubs before, you know, he left Inter after winning the league because he didn't get what he felt he wanted nor needed to kind of kick on. But I think it would be a bad look for him to just to walk out on the basis of, you know, not getting all the players or the entire budget that he wants. And also I agree um, with Glenn that there's not many options for him to go to in terms of elite clubs anyway. So where does he go? But I think that if Tottenham do get Champions League football next season, it's not only Arsenal that I think should be concerned. I think Chelsea should be concerned then because I actually think Conte, I rate him bet higher than, than Thomas Tuchel. And I think if 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 the the heat and pressure that he will put on Daniel Levy to 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 to, to back him in the summer window 
you've got Kane and Son still, you know, if he can get a couple of good defenders in, a couple of his players in, you know, he would, he'll be targeting, trying to get in the mix with, 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 um, Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp in that title race. I think that that would be his mentality next year. So I think there's a couple of teams that I think he could supersede next year if he has Champions League football and the backing of Daniel Levy to boot this summer. It's a bad look for Levy if he leaves as well. But I mean, yeah, I mean, that, that fantastic stadium, uh, Champions League, that's a big draw. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a, I think, you know, what we've got going on at Spurs is a bit of a sort of a scorpion dance between those two, isn't it? You know, what do you th- think about Arsenal? Glenn, you know, they're at home to Leeds on Sunday. Uh, is that potentially, you know, the, the easiest fixture of their running? Yeah, I think they've got, well, Everton at home probably, as he's given Everton's away forms, are actually desperately bad. I, I suspect both of a reasonable, you expect them to win. Newcastle away is a tricky one because Newcastle has been good at home. I know they lost last week, but they've been very good at home. I think Eddie and Ketia might fancy a goal against Leeds. He didn't have a particularly happy time there when he's there, did he? Um, and obviously, he's, he's looked very good. I mean, Arsenal are peaking at the right time in terms of they... Uh, it feels like Arsenal have been a little bit inconsistent and it feels like Spurs have been inconsistent and so on, but they're both still very much up there. Arsenal have this habit of... I, mean, I suppose you could say Arsenal dropped points when you wouldn't expect it and they've gained points when you wouldn't expect it in recent weeks. So maybe this Leeds game is a more dangerous one than you might think. I mean, given them the results against Brighton, Palace and Southampton. But um, they've got a bit of momentum now. Yeah, I think um, yeah, that that there's a couple of crucial games. It's going to be quite close between those two. Mm. Do you think Arsenal can afford to let Nketiah walk, Jordan? I do. I, I think we have to remember that Eddie Nketiah has been average, and I'm being kind for most of the season. I think Eddie Nketiah is a man is a player. Sorry, that I think has really good movement. I think he's got very good movement in the box, and he's a and he's a he's a decent finisher for someone of his age as well. He's a, he's a very good finisher. But I don't think we should be kind of lulled into this idea that because he's had a couple of good weeks, and by the way, he's scored a couple of big goals, but he's not, you know, he's not scored five, six goals in his last two weeks. He's got a couple of goals and put in a couple of good performances. I don't think that necessarily constitutes, you know, us, the Arsenal fan base or the club indeed changing their mind whether he's the future. I would like to keep him, but I feel like a club size of Arsenal with the aspirations that I think Arsenal now have. He's a third-choice striker. I think if you can get like a Martinez and a Tony, for example, in this summer, I would be comfortable in Ketia being the third striker. But he doesn't want to be the third striker. I think he feels he can start at a Premier League club. As good as I think he is, I'm not sure how many clubs in the Premier League Eddie Nketiah starts for. When you really drill it down, you know, is he better than Jimenez at Wolves? No. Um, Brighton, maybe. Palace, I think they have forwards just as good as him, if not better. So I think it's a gamble that he's taking. In if his aspiration is, I want to start for a Premier League club, there's not many clubs he's going to start for. Second choice, third choice, maybe. But no, I, I don't think it'll be a mistake to let him go. I think what's key now is that the board are doing the work right now to bring in two strikers. Remember, Lacazette is going as well. That work needs to be done now, irrespective of whether you get Champions League football or not. Those those plans should be drawn up. Those ideal targets you want should be done now because my fear is that Ten Hag United is going to be busy with recruitments. Spurs and Conte, which you mentioned, they'll be busy with recruitments. Liverpool and City are signing players already. So Arsenal have to, be, have, to have an idea now of who's going to be the main man up top for, for their club next year, especially if it comes to Champions League football. So, no, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, there'll be no tears on my pillow if Eddie Nketiah leaves, but I definitely think he's showing that he's a good forward that's worthy of a Premier League club somewhere, whether it's first, second or third choice. Yeah. What about the other end of the pitch, Glenn? Gabriel seems to be emerging as a, as a dominant defensive presence. And to, to Jordan's point about the need to strengthen, sometimes you have to actually look within... You know, I I saw this week that um, William Saliba, who's on loan from Arsenal, has been excelling with with Marseille. He's just been nominated for uh, Young Player of the Year in Ligue 1. So they've got to get things right defensively as well. But if you look at it, that's probably the full-back situation rather than the centre defence. It probably is. So, of course, it's nice to have cover. I mean, he's had a good time. I mean, I don't, he's not played for Arsenal, has he, since they signed him. Uh, he's done well with three teams in front. Well, we, we, we did well with Nice, did well with Marseille. He's at the end. He's, he's done well in France. It's been slightly perplexing why he's never really had a chance at home. 
It does look like Gabriel and Ben White could be quite a good combination. They have a problem. For, I mean, if you've got a guy with the injury record of Tierney, you do need good cover. So I would say possibly fall back. I mean, they have looked exposed defensively this year in terms of numbers. Callum Chambers letting him go probably would have been quite useful keeping him to the end of the season at least because he can play in quite a variety of positions. But they've largely got away with it. I mean, if Saliba comes back, does he play in the first team? Or do you, or does he become like a good reserve who's been playing a lot in France? And in that case, does he want to come back in those circumstances? If not, what can you get for him financially and where can you spend that money elsewhere? That's going to be the, the thing they're looking at. And just looking at Nketiah, I've been trying to keep him and he's a guy you bring in half an hour when you need a goal because he's, he's a good finisher and... He's getting better at the bits and pieces like linking up play and you know, the stuff that Lacazette does so well. If you could com combine Nketiah and Lacazette into one person, you'd have quite a good player. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite a big summer for Arsenal and a lot will depend where they finish. But I mean, at least they are guaranteed European football yeah, one compared to last year. Yeah. Aaron Ramsdale, Jordan, now, you know, I think his performances as a goalkeeper have been exceptional. You know your way around the decks, OK? I saw... <laughs> I saw with a uh, with a, you know, a a sense of horror that Ramsdale has taken over as the dressing room DJ. Uh, what on earth do you think you'll be coming up with? <laughs> you know what? I I I I don't know. I have no idea. Um, I'd like to think that my, my, the, the players of my club have good good taste in music. Um, I reckon and... he's. A, I think it'll be a thrash metal man himself. <laughs> Maybe it will. Maybe listen as long as. As long as um, they come out at three o'clock on on a Saturday uh, and perform, I don't care if it's thrash metal or Italian opera. They can listen to whatever <laughs> they want in, in in the dressing room. But um, I, I I like Ramsdale. I like Ramsdale because I think he's quite normal, quite cheeky, and quite human. There was a really um, funny interview he did with um, Rob Holding after the West Ham game, where the, the I think it was Des Kelly, it might be somebody else, mentioned the fact that you know, Rob Holding scored his first Premier League goal for Arsenal. And then um, Aaron Ramsdale turned to him and said, yeah, it's taken, was it six years and a new hairline, which I thought was so <laughs> savage. But it's the sort of thing that I would say amongst my friends, but you wouldn't say it to your mate on national TV. I just thought, <laughs> but I thought that I, that's sort of cheeky out of what a joke that I would make if I was with my mates. And I like that about him. My concern for Aaron Ramsdale, though, is the histrionics, I think, play well to the gallery. The Arsenal fan base loved the beating chest and the every saves are come on and uh, all of that stuff. I'm not convinced the elite goalkeepers have that temperament. I think, unless you're looking at maybe a Bruce Grobola, most elite goalkeepers are the opposite. They actually can compartmentalize very well, making a phenomenal or important save and keep their cool and, and, and move on. Whereas I think he's a very good goalkeeper. He's, I think this year, Bart, Edison and Allison, I think he's been the best keeper in the league. The stats might not back me up on that one, but I don't think there's anybody else that can challenge him as the third best keeper this season. But I think his demonstrative nature can sometimes concern me in that I feel to myself, OK, just, just, just calm down. There was a save he made on the weekend in our last match. And it wasn't even that good a save, but he, he made a real big deal about it's where some real big deal about what he'd done. I just thought, mate, not every save has to be the best save in the world. And you have to, you don't have to react as if it has been the save of the season every moment. Just, just you've made a good save, get back in goal and let's refocus. And I think to go to the next level, to get to that elite bracket, that's something that I think he'd have to improve and work on if he wants to kind of be in that top bracket. I think that, that might come with, with, with maturity. Though. I mean, I've seen we call me Jens Lehmann, yeah, Peter Smeichel were pretty demonstrative keepers. Yeah, at the times. I think it will come with maturity. I think there's more depth to Ramsdale than is necessary, apparently. I mean, it's interesting he's been seen that he's been to watch both Bournemouth and Wimbledon, his former clubs this year. And one of the Wimbledon players was saying a little story. When he when he first joined them on loan, he came down the first night and he basically he looked at everyone's pictures and memorised them on the on the web on the club website. So he knew who everybody was. Yeah, having gone down to this, you know, this third division, this League One team on loan. Yeah, so I think there was a bit of depth to him. And he has been brilliant this year. I think he's been very good for Arsenal. And sometimes with a very with a young side, you need that sort of personality. Yeah, well, he reminds me a bit, Glenn, of, of Jordan Pickford. Yeah, because you know, those the saves that he made the other day were just mm. exceptional. But he has that persona of this sort of younger, irritating brother, doesn't he? 
<laughs> oh, your family listened to this, Mike. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've got a couple of younger brothers as well. Uh, I think P- Pickford actually, in, in what's been a terrible season for Everton, uh, Pickford's had a very good season. Uh, I think it's brought a lot of good things for him. He's been under a lot of pressure and he's consistently played well for England as well. You know, for, throughout all the problems that he, I mean last year his uh, form everything has been a little bit up and down in the previous couple of years but he's consistently done well at England he's, done, you know, he's, a, he's been a, a key figure at Everton recently well yeah we're lucky we've got you know, the, the, these two you can see Pickford and Ramsdale fighting out for the England seat for quite a long, quite a long time mm, yeah well Everton have got Leicester on Sunday presumably hoping for a bit of a European hangover bit of an irony alert it looks like Crystal Palace are going to relegate their former manager Roy Hodgson Burnley at home to Villa, 10 points under Michael Jackson. How do you see the relegation battle shaking down, Jordan? I think um, I think Watford will go this weekend, leaving up one more space. And uh, up until last weekend, I had Everton gone. Uh, but that win against Chelsea, I, I think, will give them a bit of a kick. I think it's them or Leeds. And I'm, I'm, I'm jumping ship now, and I think it will be Leeds that will go. I think they have the harder of the the run-ins the last few games coming up out of them and Everton. So I fear that, you know, Leeds will be the one now that, that, that do go down. I think Everton will just about keep their head above water. But big, big questions need to be asked about that entire club this summer if they do stay up, about how they ensure they don't get in this position ever again. Mm. I think this is a really big game for Everton because I've always felt that home form will keep them up. But you have to pick up the occasional point away from home. You can't just rely on your home form. And the home form has been very, very good, but they drop points at home to Leicester. Now they need to get those points back at Leicester. Then they've got to win at Watford. They're not going to get anything Arsenal. So as long as they win their other two home games and get something out of these, they should be okay. But this is quite a big game for them. Yeah. What do you think of the Leicester? They were they were beaten by Roma. We have to look at Jose Mourinho. You know, I saw he was in tears. The first manager to reach European finals with four separate clubs, Porto, Inter, Manchester United and Roma. Actually, for a competition that everyone derided, the Europa Conference is is doing really well, isn't it? It is, although I must admit, when Mourinho came back to Chelsea, he derided Benitez winning the Europa League because they're not a proper, you know, not a proper European trophy. I've won you Champions Leagues. He's now very excited about winning the third division, the equivalent which I guess, you know, it's a slight perspective of where he is now compared to where he was then. But you're, you're right in that it's become a big competition. Some of it's, it's outgrown the venue. The venue's now Albania, and there was about 20,000 people. Well, Rome, Rome themselves would take easily that if, you know, given the opportunity. And finally, we've got good support as well. So it's... it's, it's it's funny, even, um, and it has given opportunity to a couple of clubs, yeah, like for final, for example, who, uh, you know, I guess Leicester, you know, that we wouldn't anticipate reaching the European final or getting that close to it. So it has done well. It's, it's been a um, pretty good decision. I mean, I always quite like it when we had three European competitions and, and now we're back where we were. And this is probably a stronger competition than the Cup Winners' Cup used to be. Yeah. Well, when you think about it, Europa League final is going to be a bit of a humdinger, isn't it? Rangers against Eintracht Frankfurt. Now, that's going to be a fan fest. Jordan, just want you to give us some perspective, please, on Rangers' achievement. Okay, their fans will be one of the primary stories in the build-up. They're going to just basically take Seville over, aren't they, in the way that they did with Manchester when uh, Rangers played Zenit in the UEFA Cup final in 2008. But in terms of a footballing achievement, this is huge, isn't it? It's been a great story for Rangers. Um, If you factor in the last last 10 years, really, of where they've come, obviously, you know, being forced through punishment to go down to the lower leagues of Scottish football to now, you know, on the verge of winning a European title. From, from a fan's point of view, I think it's, a, it's an amazing story. It's a slight parallel to a less degree for your life with City, having to, you know, come from league, the old League Two to, to now playing in Champions League semi-finals and finals and winning Premier League titles. The journey for Rangers has, has been vast. I think you know, what Steven Gerrard did with, with that club winning a title, stopping Celtic winning 10 in a row was huge for the club and the fan base. Van Bronckhorst now in his first year to get them to a European title, which I make them famous for, by the way, as well. I, I think is hugely impressive of that club and, and where they've come through. And I was thinking the other day about who I'd rather be at the moment, a Rangers or a Celtic fan. And, you know, Celtic are winning a league. And I always really respect leagues over cups. 
But I think if you factor in the journey and where they've come and won a, won a league last year, I'd rather be a Rangers fan right now if, if you know, in, in where they are. And I think that there's a lot about Scottish football that actually they can punch above their weight in, in European competitions, even if it is the second tier European competition. There was a there's a great line from Ali McQuist on the on the BT Sport coverage where he just basically said, "Look, this club was playing East Stirling nine years ago, which probably makes your point for you, Jordan." Also, the nature of the players, you know, you had John Lundstrom, who you know I'm told was attracting offers from Championship clubs in the January window. Just also, can you just dwell a bit, Glenn, on James Tavernier? You know, he's got 80 goals from right back in his career. It's incredible, isn't it? I mean, what, what a great asset to have as a club, to have a guy who, you know, holds down a very solid role, you know, playing his, you know, like his day job, and he's also banging in goals from right back. Yeah, I mean, he's a huge bonus. I mean, it is, Scottish football does seem to be in a bit of a, uh, after quite a lean period on a pick-up, and obviously Rangers in the final, Celtic looking very good under Postacoglu, and the champions guaranteed an automatic place in the Champions League next year, which is which is a huge thing for whoever gets it. And the national team also picking up, you know, under, under Steve Clark, he certainly turned around a team that been struggling for quite a long time. Uh, so definite, definite signs of progress there. And I mean, um, you right. I mean, there's players at Rangers who, yeah, they, they could be knocking around the championship in England instead of playing the European in the European final. I mean, uh, you know, that's, that's that's terrific for them. And um, I, I wonder about you know you, how much of this is down to Stephen Gerrard, the, the foundations he laid, and how much to Van Bronckhorst and how he's taken it on. He's yeah, he's for experts who watch Rangers regularly to debate, but um, it's certainly certainly amount of credit to both of them. Mm. So as a final point then, Chats, just drawing all this together, we started with Manchester City. Just a brief answer, please. A City destined to end this season without a trophy. Ten helmets on, you go first, Jordan. No, I don't think they're destined to not win a trophy, Mike. I, th- I think they will win the Premier League. Uh, I think they'll get three points against Newcastle and kick on from from here on in. I don't think that'll be. I don't think that will be a bad year. I don't think you can win a title, a Premier League or a, your, your domestic league, and that be seen as anything other than a good season. It won't be a great season. It won't be a record-breaking season. It won't be a, you know, a, you know, a historic season. But um, it's it's a Premier League title. That's not to be sniffed at. So. I think they will win the Premier League, but I think that they may be dwarfed by Liverpool winning the treble, which I think will will, will definitely irk them. But um, no, I think four four Premier Leagues in five years is is a phenomenal achievement, and I, and I see them getting that job done. I also think they'll win the league um, simply because they're ahead at the moment, so they have to drop points. If they don't make it, I'll try to think who would be the best team not to win a win a trophy. Maybe Everton in the '86, maybe one of the lead sides in the early '70s who are also competing on so many fronts. But uh, I think they will probably win the league. Yeah, there, there's an underlying irony in City's situation. You know, this is designed almost as as football as political science rather than art. It's also designed as the triumph of reason over emotion. You know what the theory is: invest huge sums on a fabled coach and a world-class team. Hey presto, success guaranteed. No one doubts City's talent or the beauty of some of their performances, but I think starting this weekend, it's now got to come from the heart. No more pretty patterns, the result's all that matters. To win the Premier League, they've got to fight for the right to party. In the meantime, thanks to our very own party animals, Jordan and Glenn, And thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.